0: جزاكم والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم
1: today i wanted to spend a few moments reflecting on a chapter of the Seerah of Rasulullah. We will continue with the Lives of the Companions series inshallah in our next session with Ta'ala. for today I wanted to spend some time reflecting on a particular incident from the life of the Rasulullah and the companions. This is referred to as the hijrah to Habasha. The migration to Abyssinia. In order to understand this, a little backdrop, the Prophet ﷺ receives revelation at the age of 40. He lives in Makkah Muqarama for 13 years and then migrates to Medina Munawwara where he lives for another 10 years and then passes away at the age of 63. These 13 years in Makkah are very important, understanding them. The reality is that these 13 years can actually be divided into segments and parts. If you're someone who's not too familiar with Sirah, what I can do for you is give you a simplified timeline of what actually happens in these 13 years. Understanding this will help you appreciate the major incidents, their sequence, and ultimately, for today's discussion, the actual migration to Habasha. We hear these stories that during these 13 years in Mecca Mukarramah, there were atrocities committed. By the Quraysh Against the Muslims We hear about the story of Bilal The martyrdom of Sumayya Of Yasir What most people Don't realize is that this Open, absolute, brutal Aggression in its most raw Form Actually happened during a small window It wasn't throughout the 13 years Not to say that the Quraysh weren't aggressing against the Muslims during the 13 years, but that most intense period of it, where things were out of control and Sahaba were being killed and Sahaba were standing on the sideline and they couldn't do anything about it and the Quraysh were bold and public about it, there was actually a small window that this happened in. Those 13 years. During the first three years of prophethood, Rasulullah ﷺ invited people to Islam privately. This is what we call the period of the private call. A dawa a sirriya The private invitation to Islam. The Quraysh knew something was happening. They had seen it, they had heard about it. They had flare-ups. But Rasulullah ﷺ commanded the companions to keep it quiet. The da'wah was person to person, group to group. However, in that fourth year of prophethood, Rasul alayhi salatu salam publicly invites people to Islam. This is where the Prophet of Allah climbed the mountain and said to the people that if I were to tell you that there was an army on the other side of this mountain, المصدقية, would you accept it or not? Would you believe in me? And they said, yes. And then he said to them, I warn you of the Day of Judgment and what lies on the other side of the grave. And that's where they went into rebellion mode. It was at that point that the Quraysh went into full aggression mode. Within a, few, within a small window, the aggression increased, 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 and they reached the point where they basically removed all bars, and every clan went to seek out the Muslims that were few buried in their homes. And they pulled them out, and they began to torture their own people. Makkah Karama went haywire. It went wild. This is the period where Bila is being tortured, Khabab is being tortured, Sumayya is martyred, Yasir is martyred. This continued, and in that fourth year of prophethood, the fifth year of prophethood, in the sixth year of prophethood, the fifth and sixth year, there were some incidents that occurred. In the fifth year, when the torture was at its peak, the Prophet ﷺ granted permission to the companions to migrate to Abyssinia to protect themselves. So a group of companions left Makkah Mukarramah. And then there was a second migration to Abyssinia not too long after. I'll explain the context to this first and second migration and why it's two-tiered. The second migration has almost 100 people migrating from Makkah Mukarramah to Medina, Munawwara. That's a significant population of Muslims in Mecca, in the world and it's also a significant population of Makkah itself that 100 people left the city. This torture continued until in the sixth year, two major incidents occurred in the sixth year after prophethood. So when you think of that major, that very intense period of torture, it was between the third year of prophethood and the sixth year of prophethood. This was that window. In the sixth year of prophethood, two things occurred. And these two things put an end to that public torture. The first one was Hamza radiallahu anhu becoming Muslim. And the second one was, six days later, Omar radiallahu anhu becoming Muslim. And when these two became Muslim, they made it very clear that this public torture was not going to happen. And people would not just stand there and watch. By the way, this doesn't mean that Sahaba were not tortured after that. The difficulties remained, and there were many challenges they faced. But it put an end to that era. When the Quraysh saw themselves unable to release their aggression physically against the Muslims, those two companions became Muslim in which year? Sixth year after prophethood. Therefore, the Quraysh took a different route, and in the seventh year after prophethood, they put the Muslims into a financial boycott that lasted for three years. They couldn't physically aggress against them, so they went for the financial route. And they locked them in for three years. Miraculously, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala relieved the Muslims from that financial boycott. It was very tough. During this period, the Muslims were pushed into a valley And all Muslims lived in that valley for three years. Think of it as like an open prison they were in. The Quraysh would not allow resources in. Muslims would secretly have to bring food in. They would secretly bring water in. Secretly smuggle animals in for them to benefit from. It was three very tough years. And many Sahaba actually died out of hunger and starvation. Omar himself became very weak and other companions... They physically struggled tremendously. There are some narrations regarding what the companions did to live during that time. You read the narrations that will bring tears to your eyes. It's very tough. But then again, miraculously, that, miracle, that treaty of the Quraysh, of the Arabs against the Prophet ﷺ and Sahaba, alhamdulillah, came to an end. Now, in that 10th year of prophethood, as the, as the boycott came to an end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in a different way. The 10th year of prophethood became known and went down in history as the year of grief. You guys are following me? Three years of private call, two years of public torture, first migration to Abyssinia, second migration to Abyssinia. First and second migration to Abyssinia happened, and the fifth year, early sixth year. Sixth year, two people become Muslim, two great giants. Seventh year, boycott starts, ends in the tenth year. And then in the tenth year, the year of grief occurs. And it's called the year of grief because three major incidents happened all in one year. The passing of Abu Talib, the uncle of Rasulullah who was the refuge for the Prophet of Allah from the Quraysh. Number two, the passing of Khadija anha. Abu Talib was the physical refuge for the Prophet of Allah, and Khadija radiallahu anha was the emotional refuge for the Prophet of Allah. Both of these pillars were removed from the Prophet wasallam. And then Nabi wasallam was taught the ultimate lesson of tawakkul, of reliance on Allah, the ultimate lesson of a freefall by the incident of Taif. That was, if you, can, if you want to think of it as the ultimate preparation of Nubu'ah. This is where the opening actually happened. This is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, gave Rasulullah sallallahu the tools and lessons needed for Islam to reach where it is today. Abu Talib leaves, vulnerability. Khadijah radiallahu anha leaves, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is in a very open space here. The riwayat mentioned, open meaning, you know, exposed. His two supports are gone. The books of Sirah mentioned that it was during this period that Rasulullah spent a lot of time alone and spoke very little to people. Went into his little place very sad. And then he gained himma and went to taif. And that's where this development occurred Where Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam went through um, A great test from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala What we may refer to as humiliation in the world That's what a person would view it as A person was humiliated But Rasul Alayhi salam wasn't humiliated He was tested by Allah And the test in life that we face Before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you an opening is how much you're willing to trust Allah So the opening is granted in accordance to that But Allah gives when the time comes to give, everyone has a window of being gifted There is a significant point in each and every one of our lives that you see things open in a way that Did not open before, there was so much struggle right until that point and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives based off of the reliance in tawakkul that you show in the phase right before the futuhat, right before the, open, right before the opening. After Rasulullah sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam returns from Taif, that marks the end of the 10th year, now the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa lives in Mecca, Mukarramah for two more years, two months and change, two years and change. The incident of Isra wal Mi'raj occurs in the 11th year. The Prophet of Allah then focuses attention to the people visiting Mecca during the Hajj season. That those that are visiting Mecca, the Meccans have proven they're not interested. So minimal attention was given there. And now the Prophet of Allah was focusing outward. So in the first year, uh, in the eleventh year, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam interacts with the first group of sahaba from Medina, A small group of them. And then the twelfth year after Prophethood. There's a larger group. They invite Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi to Medina. This larger group, he also interacts with them in the hajj season. This is a large group of people who are performing hajj from Medina. And they say to the Prophet of Allah in that 12th year, just come and live with us. So in the early 13th year after prophethood, the Prophet of Allah migrates. This is a summary of all 13 years. Do you guys understand this? This is the summary of? All 13 years. I'll summarize it for you one more time. The first three years, what are they? The private call. Four to five is? Like, immense test against the companions. In the fifth year, towards the end of the fifth, is where the Hijra to Abyssinia comes, which is what we're going to talk about today. Followed by a second migration to Abyssinia. We'll cover both of these in more detail. And then we have in the sixth year, the conversion of? Hamza and Umar radiallahu anhumah The seventh year, the boycott, which lasts for how long? Three years. In the tenth year, three major incidents. Wufatu Abi Talib, number one. Number two, passing of Khadijah radiallahu anha. Number three, Taif. The eleventh year, Isra al-Miraj. Inna ma'al-Usri Yusra, with every difficulty comes ease. And two major incidents left before the Prophet migrates. At the end of the 11th year, the first group he meets from Medina during the Hajj season. In the following year, he meets a second group in Hajj from Medina Munawwara. In 13th year, at the beginning, everyone starts their hijrah. In Muharram, all the hijrah starts. By Rabiul Awal, Rasul alayhi salatu salam, begins his own hijrah. Muharram Safar Rabiul Awal. So early 13th year, the hijrah starts. Everyone moves. Now we come back to the migration to Abyssinia. The migration to Abyssinia happens in the fifth year after Nabuwa, Right at that peak, when the Quraysh are going all out, they are torturing the Sahaba. They're thinking of creative ways to torture the companions. Rasul ﷺ began to think of solutions for his people. What do they do? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not granted permission for the Sahaba to even defend themselves. They're not even allowed to speak back to the aggressor. It's a lesson of patience. It's a moment of forbearance. And very logical. It's very logical because if the Muslims got into the business of responding and if they step into debate culture that we're going to fight and argue right now while they're still in their developmental phase, the people who the Dawah of Islam is supposed to reach will turn away from Islam because of the aggression from the Muslims, because of early aggression. If the Muslims go and hit them, they have more strength, they will hit back, the Dawah won't go anywhere. In order for this to become something, the natural cause will be, or the natural path will be, there will be a call to Islam, there will be opposition, the early Muslims will need to be patient And if they are patient The people who are engaging in the aggression will see their wrong Through the forbearance of those companions And then Allah will put nur in their heart Islam will come And then these people will be the ones that will accept Islam And that's exactly what happened with Hamza radiallahu an. That's exactly, why did Hamza radiallahu an become Muslim? Because Abu Jahl went too far. There's an incident, I won't go into the details of it, but Abu Jahl approached Rasulullah and he went too far. And Hamza saw this and he knew what was right, he knew what was wrong, and he said, that, You went too far, buddy. I'm on the same faith as you are, but you went too far. And when Hamza became Muslim, the people said to Abu Jahl that you converted him to Islam. He wasn't even going to be Muslim. But you're the one who converted him. The same thing happened with Umar ibn Khattab where he went from being the one that was torturing Muslims to becoming a Muslim and anger, anger, anger against Muslims until finally he realized that he went too far. Umar turning moment was when he hit his own sister. That was his turning moment. That he saw his innocent sister Your eyes open up when there is a moment of compassion You have to see compassion through the aggression For you to see what is actually happening You have to humanize the aggression Not just view it as a mechanism of justice That's how the Quraysh viewed their aggression A mechanism of justice Hamza radiallahu anhu was able to see it through the compassion and love he had for Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that zulm became zulm and it was clear in front of him, this is zulm right here. Because it was done against someone beloved to me. And this person went too far. And Umar was able to see it and this was the most beautiful thing about Umar He didn't need to see oppression in others. He had this amazing ability to see his own flaws first. So when he hit his own sister, how fascinating is that? And in that moment, that dhulm led him to the conclusion that I am the oppressor. This is an innocent lady right here on the ground who's bleeding. What did she say? La ilaha illallah. She wants to be Muslim. He didn't even know what her religion was. It's at that point that he asked her, what is your religion? He reads the opening verses of Surah Taha, he becomes Muslim. The Prophet began to think of ways to deliver relief to the companion. So the Prophet of Allah والسلام, laid his eyes on Abyssinia. Not because of the geography necessarily. Not because of the climate necessarily. The reason why the Prophet والسلام, laid his eyes on Abyssinia as the place where the companions would migrate those who wanted relief from this pressure in Mecca was because of the leader there. The Prophet والسلام, said, لو خرب, لو if you were to go to the land of Habasha, for in that land lies a king that no one will be harmed or oppressed in his presence. It's justice. Even though it was not a land of Islam, even though they were not Muslims themselves, because as human beings, in order for us to function and flourish, we need peace and justice. Two things that people need for, to grow. Give these two things to people. Right? And if you leave them alone without influencing them, 99% I'm telling you, they will find Allah on their own. Because iman is fitri. You just need to give two things to people and minimize their distractions. Minimize the things that are pulling them away from their purpose. What are the two things they need? They need prosperity and they need peace and justice. If they don't have prosperity, they will have to dedicate their life providing for their families and for themselves because that's a need of human beings. We need to be able to feed ourselves, take care of our needs, right? You go into survival mode. And the second thing you need is justice and peace. I put those two together because the reality is one as a result of the other. Peace is a result of justice. If there's no justice, and the peace that you're in is temporary, because it's at the cost of injustice. Today you're getting away with it because the poor people are being oppressed. Tomorrow your turn will come. There's no doubt in that. You've just skirted the problem. It's coming to you next. This is what Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala refers to in the Quran. الذي أطعمهم من جوع وآمنهم من خوف. These two things that I said to you, Allah Azawajal refers to prosperity in the Quran as الذي أطعمهم من جوع، and that justice and safety, Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to that in the ayah وآمنهم من خوف. Similarly, in the Quran. Ibrahim السلام, when he arrived in Mecca, he made these very same two du'as. رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا بَلَدًا وَرْزُقْ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ Peace and prosperity. رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا بَلَدًا Amina. Oh Allah, make this a safe city, a peaceful place. Can you close that door? وَرْزُقْ مِنَ الثمرات. And grant the people of this city prosperity. Similarly, in another place in the Qur'an, I'll cite this as the last one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that the absence of these two could at times be a punishment from Allah. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inflicts hunger on people, pulls away barakah and their risk, and takes away peace and safety and prosperity from them. If you grant these two things to someone, And just leave them alone. And you minimize the distractions. Like the wild card after peace and prosperity because you would wonder, people in our country should be Muslim. Well, the issue is they're distracted. This is why dhikr is so important and the removal of ghafla is equally important. You have to remove distractions and just be in a good place. Dhikr here is a positive effort where you're remembering Allah. But even if you don't have dhikr, the fitrah of the insan will lead them to Allah. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam needs to offer them, is looking for to offer them a place of peace and prosperity. Where does he see? He sees Abyssinia. For in that land is a king that no one shall be oppressed by him. A land of truth. Farajan مِمَّا That if you need to stay there, you can stay there until matters become easier. So when Nabi ﷺ gave this permission, a group of companions then migrated. The first people to migrate, the riwayat tell us, the first two people to migrate, and these are the first people to migrate in the history of Islam ever. And if you wanted to push the statement a little further, you would also say the first two people to migrate since Ibrahim السلام, and his nephew Lut. The two people to migrate were Uthman عنه, and the Prophet's daughter Ruqayya. Nabi sending anha as one of the first people was a big relief and a lesson for everyone. Else that wanted to migrate, that you leaving Makkah doesn't make you a second-tier human being. It doesn't mean you're running away. It doesn't mean you're weak. Because he is sending his own daughter first, Ruqayya radiallahu anha, that you will go. Ruqayya radiallahu anha is the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Nabi sallallahu wasn't going to go himself because he needed to be stay there in Makkah For the change to occur, for da'wah to exist, for Islam to move on. But in his place he sends Ruqayya radiallahu anha. And Sayyidina Uthman ibn affan One of the ulama While commenting on The Hijra to migration He said Someone may think That migration to Abyssinia Was the easier route It was the cop-out It was the sort of run away From the real problem But he said no How is How is it easier for you to leave your family behind? How is it easier for you to leave your wealth behind? How is what they're doing any easier for them to leave the Prophet of Allah behind? That every day they're just thinking. So then why did they go? The reason why they went is because the Sahaba in Abyssinia, the reason why the Prophet of Allah encouraged them, in addition to it being a safety for them, was it was also a safety safety policy for the Muslims that if everything takes a solid left turn in Mecca what do we have guys a second group out there the dawa will continue these people will head out to Abyssinia and they will stay safe and if everything takes a wild turn in Mecca mukarrama those are the people that will continue the dawa of Islam until the end of times so this group of people with a heavy rock on their shoulders Shaykh Ali al-Tantabi, Mahima Allah, writes, وَدَعَاهُمُ الرَّسُولُ إِلَى مَا هُوَ أَشَدُّ مِنْ هَذَا كُلِّهِ إِلَى فِرَاقِ الْوَطَنِ وَطَرْكِ الْأَهْلِ That when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam encouraged these companions to migrate, he told them to do something that was very hard in reality. That was leaving family behind, leaving your leaving your homeland behind. وَأَن يَمْشُ فِرَارًا بِدِينِهِمْ إِلَى بِلَادٍ لَيْسُ مِنْهَا For them to go to a land That they were foreign to To a place that they didn't speak the language To a place that the religion wasn't even theirs Very vulnerable But they went anyway Because that was the command of Rasulullah The number of companions that migrated there There were 11 men and there were three or four women. The more common position is that there were 11 men and four women. They went in the month of Rajab. Rajab. That's two months before Ramadan. This is important. Rajab, Shaaban, Ramadan. Shawwal. They leave in Rajab. And when they leave, they arrive to the port city, there is a ship, they board the ship, they head to Abyssinia, the Quraysh sent some people to retrieve them, but by the time those people arrived to retrieve the companions, they had already boarded the ship and they were long gone. So they missed them altogether. They leave in Rajab most likely arrive in Abyssinia, end of Rajab, early Sha'ban. They're in Abyssinia for Sha'ban, Ramadan, and they return back to Makkah in Shawwal. So how many months is this first migration, actually? Two months and some. More or less two months. They leave in Rajab, Sha'ban, Ramadan, and then Shawwal, they're already back in. Medina, Makkah, Mukarramah. Why? In the month of Ramadan, something happened. The Prophet ﷺ, after the companions left to Abyssinia, this group of 15 people in total, 15, 16 people, he continued to give da'wah to the Quraysh. One day, Rasulullah ﷺ was sitting near the Kaaba. The leaders of the Quraysh were there. And the Prophet ﷺ was reciting verses of Surah Al-Najm. hawa For the students that are here. Surah Al-Najm, part of it was revealed in early Makkah, and the second part of it was revealed in late Makkah. Because in Surah Al-Najm, there are also verses regarding Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj Those verses were revealed naturally as I give you the timeline closer to the 11th year of prophethood And the students here will also know that this is actually quite common that in a particular surah some verses are revealed in one period, and the second verses are revealed in another period. But the reason why they're paired together in one surah is because that's how Rasulullah paired them together. This is what he taught us. The tarteeb of the ayahs in the surahs of the Qur'an is tawqifi. The tartib of the surahs themselves is most likely not tawqifi according to Jamhur Mufassirun. What all that means is that the, the sequence of the verses in every surah were guided and commanded by Rasulullah As for the sequence of the surahs themselves, Surah Fatiha being first in the Qur'an, and then all 14, 114 surahs, this sequencing of the surah, according to majority of the Mufassirun, the 114 in the exact sequence that we have right now, was, during, was done during the time of Uthman ibn Affan anhu that he sequences the surahs like this and it's actually based off of narrations as well there's it's not like they just came up with it the sahaba were very particular about anything but that exact 114 that we have in the sequence in the same way most likely was a result of the amazing phenomenal effort of uthman ibn affan an so now rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is reciting the verses of suratul najm and while he's reading these verses, the Prophet wasallam recites the last verse of the Surah. That last verse of the Surah, according to the Mufassirun, scholars of Tafsir, has an ayah Sajda in there, and that was the very first ayah Sajda ever revealed. The first ayah Sajda out of the 14, or 13, or 11, or 15, there's a difference of opinion there, out of 14, we're going to go the Hanafi round here, out of the 14 ayatu Sajda, ayatu Sajda that are revealed, the first one was from Surah An-Najm. So when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, let's go back to the image, okay? He's sitting near the Kaaba, he's reading Surah An-Najm, he recites the last verse of Surah An-Najm, which is ayatu Sajda. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did Sajda, because it's a verse of Sajda. The Sahaba with him also did Sajda, because it's a verse of Sajda. However... However, the Quraysh also did sajda too. They're not Muslim. The question is, what just happened? Why are the Quraysh doing sajda? So now comes a game of telephone. The Quraysh did sajda. Someone saw it and went back home and told his people, man, the Quraysh did sajda. Muhammad ﷺ was reading the Qur'an. Everyone did sajda around the Kaaba. So did the Quraysh. Footnote here, when the Quraysh would worship, they would bow, but they would not do sajda. Sajda, the putting of the forehead on the ground, was unique to Muslims, and they would always make fun of the Prophet and Sahaba for that act. Praying to God with their hands raised, they did that. Bowing down, they did that too. They had their own interesting version of Salah, but it did not include sajda. When the Quraish did sajda, that was a very big scene, like what? The Qura- that means only Muslims do sajdah If the Quraysh did sajdah That means they all became Muslim That did not happen though Now a game of telephone One person tells another person Who tells another tribe And that spreads And then one guy doing business from, from, uh, from the Hijaz This region, this peninsula And he's out in Abyssinia And one of the Sahaba hear it That And what he hears is All the Quraysh have become Muslim in Makkah Mukarrama. now is fully in Islam the Sahaba in Abyssinia were amazed What? Everyone's Muslim Wow, that's a dream come true SubhanAllah Allah Subhanahu ta'ala granted Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam The gold that he was searching for There's no point being here in Abyssinia anymore Let's all go back to Mecca So in the month of Shawwal They depart Abyssinia Based off of this misinformation When they arrive in the outskirts of Mecca the reality becomes clear. The Quraysh did not become Muslim. Not only did they not become Muslim, they were still as stubborn as they always, more, always were, if not more. Now this raised a question. What do we do? Do we enter into Mecca? It's not a safe place. It's very hostile. Or do we head back to Medina Munawwara? I mean, Abyssinia. Do we head back to Abyssinia? The companions agreed they were too close to Mecca to see the prophet's face to head back without seeing him. They couldn't go. They couldn't go back to Abyssinia without seeing the prophet Allah and said, checking up on him. This may be difficult for you guys because we live in a world of technology and tablets and laptops and pictures and videos and FaceTime. But in a world prior to all of this, where people didn't have the modern means of communication that Allah has blessed us with today, going to a country and not seeing your relatives was unimaginable. That was the first thing that you did. Even if you were on the opposite side of the country. If you had relatives in California and you landed in Chicago you were gonna drive to California to go and see them That was a thing by the way when people came to America I remember this if we had relatives in New York and they landed in Chicago They drove all the way to New York They drove those 12 hours because this was their one chance to see their family members And Allah knows if they would get to see them again when we were young when relatives would come from abroad they would bring these cassettes with voice recordings of all of our relatives back home. And my dad would have all the kids sit down and he would play the cassette and he would say, this is your uncle, this is your aunt, this is your cousin now speaking. It was like a, you know, a voice uh, voicemail, right? but on cassettes. And they, would, and they would bring a cassette every few years. A new cassette would come and sometimes they'd ship a cassette and you'd sit down, the whole family would listen to it and there'd be a cassette that would say, only for Abdul So my dad would listen to that one quietly because there was private information in there. Or they would say only for this person, so that person would listen to quietly because it was, their, um, it was their private message. I don't know if you guys remember any of this or not, but this was how it was. So now the Sahaba are outside Mecca, and the Prophet of Allah is there. How could they go back? The only thing that must have been on their mind, how is the Prophet what they think? What do you think they were thinking about for two months? What do you think they were thinking about? I mean, if it was me, I would probably think, I mean, I'm not going to use the Prophet of Allah as an example. Let's say it was my own child that I was away from for two months and I had no way to communicate with them. My thought would be, if it was my father, I hope he's okay. I hope he's alive. Considering it was a hostile environment, I hope he's, he hasn't been hurt in any way. Without doubt, this is what the companions must have been thinking. So now they want to enter into Makkah. But Makkah Muqarama is full hostile. You can't just enter into Makkah. They will torture you. And these were the people that just left Makkah. So they committed a social crime against Makkah. And the leaders of Makkah, their honor was stained. That these people left Makkah and went to Abyssinia. They were gone for two months only. But everyone in the Arabian Peninsula is speaking about it. Now that they come back, naturally the Arabs are thinking, we will show these people. This is what you get for defaming us. So, in order to enter back into Mecca, what these people had to do was, they had to seek a jiwar. In a tribal society, the way you protect yourself is by aligning yourself with one of the powerful clans and tribes and seek their refuge. It was very important for these clans and tribes to every now and then, in difficult moments, give their refuge to a complicated individual so they can prove that they still had the muscles to flex and that their refuge would be, would be honored. It was a mutual thing. You guys understand? If you wanted to enter, enter into a hostile place, you needed refuge from a tribe. The tribes, in order to show that they were respected and that their word actually mattered every now and then, what do they need to do? Step into a complicated situation and give their zamana, that we give our word for this. So now the companions, they went to key individuals who they knew from before, and they said, give us your refuge so we can enter into Makkah Mukarramah safely. The correct individuals, the correct tribe said, we give you our word, go, no one will touch you. If they touch you, war. Because touching that person was no longer about an aggression against someone, it was an aggression against their honor, and in a tribal society without honor, you have nothing. You guys understand the dynamics here? Right? This is all very important. So, you know, you hear those stories of, oh, in Jahili times, one person, there was a story of one guy's uh, camel crossing into another guy's field, and he killed the camel, and that guy's camel came over, and then he killed him, and which led to a hundred year war. Have you guys heard those stories? This actually happened. These sort of incidents did occur, where one, tra- one animal went into the other guy's farm, this guy's animal went into this guy's farm, and these guys fought against each other it had less to do with animal and more to do with tribal ego that's what it was everyone had to prove that no transgression would go unpaid against our clan even if it is done by a goat because if we if you can come into our land and you come into our, te- our 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 territory or come into our um our international, our, our, waters and, and take your warship around and we don't do anything. We don't retaliate. That means we're weak. So if you bring your warship into our designated waters, we will fire against you. Your aircraft comes into ours. We will, we will warn you once there's going to be a missile behind you. This is to prove that you don't just send things. You bring a balloon into our country, fly across our nation. We will shoot it down because strength, sovereignty. There was a Sahabi, so now the Sahaba one by one took their um, Their jiwar and they entered into Mecca One Sahabi specifically, his name is Uthman ibn Madhuun He's a fascinating figure by the way Amazing human being, amazing personality, amazing story If Allah gives us life in tawfiq one day we'll dedicate a class just to his life Uthman ibn Madhuun He is the first Sahabi to pass away and be buried in Baqiyah from the Muhajirun, the first one. And when he passed away, Rasulullah cried a lot. So Uthman ibn al one, he wants to enter into Makkah Mukarram again. He does so by seeking jiwar from one of the leaders of the Quraysh, Al-Walid ibn al Al-Walid ibn Muhirah. He takes his refuge, he enters into Mecca He's untouchable The Quraysh can't touch him, no one can touch him Even though he just migrated to Abyssinia and back Why? Because who does he have behind him? Who does he have? Is Walid bin Mughira a small fish? He's the real deal Walid bin Mughira is like the political power of Mecca if you know Sita, if you know the prophetic biography, you know that name, Walid bin Mughira, big deal. He's untouchable. This guy is literally driving up and down Manhattan with those diplomatic plates. Can't do anything. Now, as he's walking around Makkah, what he sees is fellow Muslims being tortured. There's a conflict that occurs in his heart. This just feels wrong. I'm able to walk around freely while the Prophet of Allah can't walk around. I mean, there's a worry of him. My other fellow companions are being tortured here. I can walk around freely and go shopping wherever I want. Go eat wherever I want because I have Walid bin Mughira behind me. He didn't like it. If you just reflect on that, there are so many lessons just in this part of the story itself. This uh, emotion that he's experiencing can be summarized as the essence of Iman. There are a few ahadith coming into my mind that help us understand what he was experiencing. One of them is a statement of the Prophet of Allah, "Al-mu'minoon Al-Mu'minuna قراجن واحد. Believers are like one body. You hurt one, you hurt all. When I see a fellow Muslim in pain, when I see them struggling, I can't smile. I can't just go on to live life as if nothing's happening. The Prophet of Allah said the Muslims are like one body. If the eye hurts, the whole body hurts. And if the head hurts, then the whole body hurts. When I narrate this hadith, I always share what incident that happened in my life. I'll share with you guys here too for your own benefit. When we were students in the madrasa, this was early 2000, maybe 2000, 2001, 2002, something like this. One of the early 2000s—I don't remember the exact year, but you can check it. America decided to invade with its allies Iraq. Tony Blair and Bush, both these guys—they were buddies. They said, you know what, we're going to bomb that part of the world to bits. I don't know how many of you guys were alive during that time. But we were students in madrasa. And I remember we had just prayed Fajr Salah. And the night before, when we went to sleep, the news came. They had just started bombing. So we went to sleep that night. We woke up for Fajr Salah. And after Fajr Salah, our principal in al Hadith, Shaykh Yusuf Shaykh Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he Spoke to the students and he said one sentence, two sentences. He said, Last night, our brothers and sisters in Iraq started facing death. Statement number one. Statement number two I do not want to see any student in the Darululum and Madrasa smiling moving forward. And he left. I don't want to see anyone laughing. I don't want to see anyone joking. I don't want to see anyone in a good mood. People are dying. Muslims are dying right now. Let that settle in your heart. In اِشْتَكَاءَ عَيْنُهُ kullu. Uthman ibn mud'un the anhu He says, I can't walk around Mecca with impunity while other Sahaba are being tortured. So he heads back to Abu Abd al-Shams, Walid ibn Mughira. And he says to him, take your jiwar back. Take your protection back. Waleed bin Mughira says, I gave you my protection publicly, so the only way I will take it back is if you give it back to me publicly and I accept it publicly, right? He said, okay. So they head to the Kaaba, and while they're sitting there, everyone's there. He says that I, and he says very nicely, very respectfully, Uthman bin Mughira says, I sought protection from Waleed bin Mughira and he was the best of people. He was the most noble of them. He fulfilled the right of granting protection. He is the most honorable of people. Because this is true. Walid bin Mughirah did nothing wrong. He said, however, I give it back to him. I am in no need of his protection. I seek refuge with Allah. Walid bin Mughirah said, okay. I take it back. Uthman bin an sits down. The leaders of the Quraysh are sitting there. The famous Arab poet, Labid. In that gathering, he says a line of poetry. He just gives a refuge back. He's sitting, gives a protection back, puts away that safety net. He's sitting with the leaders of the Quraysh. Labid is sitting there, and Labid says a line of poetry: "Ala kullu shayin ma Everything other than everything other than Allah is in vain. So when he says this statement. Uthman bin Madur says to him, Sadaqta, you are right. Everything other than Allah is in vain. What that means is everything will come to an end. There is no true permanence that belongs to any creation. Permanence is for Allah. This statement of Labid was true. Everything other than Allah will cease to exist. It's in vain. He then said, the second line, Labid said, وَكُلُّ نَعِيمٍ زَائِلُّ That every blessing will surely come to an end. Every blessing will surely come to an end. Uthman bin an said, كَذَبْتَ You have lied here. نَعِيمُ الْجَنَّةِ لَا يَزُولُ Because paradise will never come to an end. Paradise is eternal. The Quraysh did not believe in eternal life. So he was refuting him. Labid was offended that Uthman bin Mad'un refuted him publicly. He said to the Quraysh, are you going to let him go? He speaks to your top poet like this. The Quraysh got up and they gave him a beatdown. They beat up um, Uthman bin Mad'un. A group of people then came and saved him. Wali bin Mughira said to him, You know, you can still have my refuge. And to that, Uthman bin Madhun said to him, La I will not take protection with you, and my protection will always and only be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This story of Uthman bin Madunadi is powerful because it shows us his iman. Now, this is referred to as the first migration to Abyssinia. As Quraysh went back to business torturing the companions rasulullah sallallahu wa then said to the companions you can migrate to abyssinia again if you want don't feel that because you came back you can't go that you left you came back you may think that no now it's expected of us to stay here the prophet says no go seek safety protect yourself protect your lives if you want to no problem at all so the second migration to abyssinia happens and this is in the 6th year after prophet had 83 men and from the women there were 18 of them just over 100 people 101 83 men and 18 women uh, over 100 people rasulullah sallallahu appoints Ja'far bin Abi Talib anh, as the Amir among them. According to the Ahlul Seer, there is a debate on whether Uthman anh, went back to Abyssinia the second time or not. It seems as if the scholars are of the position that Uthman anh, did not go the second time. He only went the first time. Then when he came back, he stayed with the Prophet of Allah right till the end. Wallahu Alam, there's some discussion here among the historians. So for the second group, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam points Jafar bin Abi Talib. An. Like this, there are other companions as well who there is a doubt about because whether they went again. We are told that Ibn Mus'ud an, went as well to Abyssinia. His name is there. The issue is that the first migration took place to abyssinia how long did they go for two months in some the second migration that took place they then came back in the sixth year after hijrah 10 years later more than 10 years you guys understand they spent almost 13 years away from rasulullah so if ibn mus'ud went then how was he present in badr because he killed abu jahl So one group of Sahaba, one group of scholars, they said Ibn Masood was not in the second migration, he was in the first one. But now there is a riwayah from another Sahabi who says that when Ibn Masood came back, we at that point were no longer permitted to greet one another in Salah. That's another riwayah. That when Ibn Masood came, when he came, we were no longer allowed to greet each other in Salah. And greeting each other in salah was something that was permitted in the early days of Islam. So that means Ibn Masuda was gone for a length, longer period. Right? This is why Ibn al-Qayyim عليه, says that the Sahaba uh, who returned from Abyssinia, one of them returned at the end of the fr- one group of them returned at the end of the first migration, the second one returned in the year of Khaybar, the sixth year after Prophet, sixth year after Propheted. And there was one group that returned somewhere in the middle as well. Somewhere in the middle, there was a third group of people. Ibn qayyim he says, going lahum qadmatun kabla badrin, fayakuna lahum thalathu which means that there were three times that they returned, not just two. Again, this is a point that's, that carries a little detail, and this is more for the students that are sitting here, so you can appreciate the timeline and understand the historical uh, incidents that are occurring. Now, when the Muslims make the second migration to Abyssinia, this is where this famous incident takes place. The Quraysh are very frustrated. A hundred people go. That's a significant population of Muslims. Also a significant population of Makkah, It just disappeared. They all went. And a hundred people traveling. First, it was 15 people that traveled, 16 people that traveled. Small caravan that's going. A hundred people going across Arabia and then traveling over to Abyssinia. And they now have a whole locality in Abyssinia. This is a big deal. And the Quraysh could not tolerate this, so they sent two people to go and bring them back. From them was Amr bin Asr. Amr bin Asr, when he arrives in Abyssinia, he comes with many gifts, and they offer gifts not only to the king of Abyssinia, not only to Najashi, the king, Ashama, but he also gives gifts to all of the, uh, the priests that are by his side. All of them, all of them, gives them all amazing gifts to win their favor. He then says to Najashi, Amr ibn As says to Najashi, that there are some young people among you from our community. They're naive people. They're a little caught up these days. They have some crazy ideas. Uh, We're very worried about them. We don't think it's safe for them to be so far from their families in your land. They haven't really given this too much thought. So the elders of our community feel that the best thing is for them to come back home so we can take care of them and look after them and provide them the care they need so manipulative liars they're killing Sumayya and Yasir and they say we want to take care of them but this is how abusive people are if you ever talk to someone who's come out of an abusive relationship the abuser their mind they're so twisted they believe their abuse is the ultimate compassion for the abused. That mother-in-law, that father-in-law, that husband, that wife, that cousin, that relative, that friend, that teacher, they think that their abuse was actually mercy for the other person. This is how these guys think. Najashi was a just person. If this is true, then in that case they should be returned because their caregivers are in another place and that's where they should be with their caregivers so najashi he calls in the muslims when the muslims come in and they see amar bin there and they see the trick that he's playing they are worried why are they worried because none of these people have a direct previous relationship with najashi amar bin ast does he had come to abyssinia multiple times they had a trusting relationship this man came with gifts, showing honor to Najashi and his court. And these were just average people that had just moved to the land. So Najashi said to the Muslims, present your case. What is going on here? These people are saying this. What is your story? It's at that point that Jafar bin Abi Talib, radiallahu anh, he takes the stand and gives this very passionate speech. Such a beautiful speech. And I'm going to share his speech. So much inspiration there. So much to learn from his words. If you reflect on his speech, you will see that he wasn't just talking about his circumstance or the circumstances of Jahiliya. He was talking about America in 2023. He was talking about us. And then he talks about how the prophet of allah made such a big impact on society and changed their lives jafar an said ayyuhal malik kunna al we were a people who lived in ignorance and we worshipped idols just like us we say we believe in allah but in reality there are idols that distract us from our tawheed. Idols of the nafs, idols of politics. Muslims these days have a much easier time bowing down in front of their political parties than they have bowing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When it comes to aligning with their leftist or uh, right-leaning identities, it's much easier for them to go on social media and regurgitate the left and right arguments To, you know, just repeat the same nonsense without being critical of any of it Whether it aligns with Sharia or not whether it is a part of the Quran or not And in places where it contradicts the Quran It's easier for them to bow in front of those idols than it is to do such that in front of Allah People of Tawheed are not very few It's not easy to find people who who will change their position and change their perspective Simply by the recitation of a verse How you know a person's iman is strong When you see them change their life Just by hearing revelation Regarding Umar ibn Khattab an, One of the descriptions that you find in the books of Tabaqat and Sir, كان وقافا عند كتاب الله. What this means is when Umar heard a verse being recited, everything else stopped. He changed his position. If someone quoted an ayah, if Umar was convinced of one thing, and someone cited an ayah of the Quran, instantly he changed his position. This is the new position. What changed? The ayah of the Quran was referenced. Umar was upset because he felt that the Prophet of Allah did not pass away, he had just gone to meet his Lord. Sayyidina Abu Bakr s.a.w. recites the ayat وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولُ, خل... ما... محمد إلا رسول قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُلُ He thought the Prophet of Allah couldn't die. That's what Umar r.a. was another impression of. Abu Bakr, صديق, عنه, recites the ayat Umar falls to his knees and he cries because he realizes this is right. The Prophet of Allah has passed away. how you know Wahi? is doing its thing. How you know that the deen is making its impact on you is that you will change for the deen, the deen won't change for you. This is the issue with jumping between madahib. You don't ever know whether you are changing for the deen or if the deen is constantly just changing for you. Because for most people that jump between madahib, it has less to do with any sort of intellectual rigor and more to do with what I feel I need to do in this moment. Accommodating someone's need is very different from constantly just changing Islamic law non-stop to find the easiest option out, and therefore having zero submission to revelation. When you stick to a particular school of thought and commit to principles that this is a system that Muslims follow for over 1,000 years. Honestly, when I find people, when I, when I see people who struggle to appreciate fiqh and the madahim, I worry that it's an issue of ego and arrogance. This is, these are systems that have existed for 1,000 years. Billions of Muslims lived by this system, these systems. And the ego in today's Muslims Want to study the least but have the loudest voice. Wow, man. That's a lot of guts. I don't know if I should say this next part. I can get in trouble for saying it. They say the loudest dog has the weakest bite. I'm not saying it. They say it. the loudest dog has the weakest bite this is by no means a claim that the these schools of thoughts and these madahim each of them are 100% perfect in every way because we're all human beings right but that marginal you know probability of error is being Blown out of proportion, and the whole thing is being treated as if it's some childish exercise that a few people engaged in at some circus. We're talking about a tradition that has been peer-reviewed for 1,000 years. With the most critical eyes. Personally, honestly, I feel very comfortable by aligning aligning myself with a madhab. I feel safe. Because I know the system that I'm with, the system that I'm attaching myself to, represents the opinions of highly intellectual, critical, God-fearing people who kept positions consistent regardless of the politics of history. Whether you look at Islamic law in Al-Quduri, Sharh al or Hidayah, with the politics changing, their fiqh did not... It didn't change. Muslims today, our opinions change with the changing of politics. Right. By the way, I'm, gonna, I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but I have to make one disclaimer. This doesn't mean the fuqaha did not take urf into consideration. There's a difference between them taking the norms of society into consideration and being pressed and squashed under political pressure. I'm talking about the first they never did. The second they always did. Meaning, the political pressure part, they didn't flatten out underneath that. But taking the norms into consideration, that is what a faqih does. That's what a mujtahid does. This is what a mufti actually does. Anyway, na'budul asnam. That's where we went off from in a world full of idol worshipping, he says, كُنَّا We were a people of ignorance that worshipped idols. And the more you look at society, you find that there are different idols worshipped with varying levels of loyalty that are owed to those idols. I don't really relate to this stuff, to be honest with you. In the world that I live, I spend most of my day between a seminary, a masjid, and home. That's my day. But for people who live outside of this, the idols are innumerable. How many are there? The other day, one sister in our community was saying to me, in our own masjid, she was saying to me that these days young people are into K pop. And I was like, what? K, what? And then, I I don't remember the names, but there were, what were the names? You know the names. Don't make that up. She's just acting like, I don't know. Sheikh Rashid, and then, you know. <laughs> they were naming all the singers, all these musicians, like, you know, oh, this band, they're doing a show, and there's a fear that this band may break up right now, and all the girls are really worried, and they're saying they really hope the band doesn't break, because that will break people's hearts. And God, what I had. Allah knows what's going on. al They've lost it, man They have like their musicians' names tattooed onto their skin Only if we had that much love for Allah Not the tattoo part But the commitment You see people who love Apple products talk about Apple Think, wow, man, that's some serious love right there. People who love Tesla, the Tesla people, the worst. They just can't stop doing tarif of it. It kind of reminds me of like the poets that would write poetry on the seerah or something, you know, they just would keep going. You just had to give them a reason to talk. You would say electric and they would start. Even though the rest of your word is going to be toaster. They just start a wine issue electric issue, and then they keep going and going. Fazail, fazail, fazail. Everyone's given bayah to Elon Musk. Nabudul Asnan. al Maita. No consideration of what we were eating, savages. That's what today's world is again. What are we eating? What are we putting into our bodies? Nobody knows. Twinkies. You guys know what Twinkies are? I heard they don't make them anymore. End of a generation. Um, I think, yeah, and then what was it? I don't even know where to start on this one because there are, like, there are things that we eat in America as a part of our diet, one of the most advanced economies of the world, that only Allah knows what it's doing in our body. Carmine, you guys know Carmine? No? Some of you guys don't know? You ever hear someone say that the red M&M is haram? It's because of carmine. I'm not passing a fatwa here. And no one should. It's a matter of ikhtilaf and ijtihad of fuqaha. It's not a joke. You shouldn't just make a mockery out of these things. But there's a serious question there. And that is that in order to attain this pink-red color that we have in a lot of our food today... Um, not just in m M&M, and but in juices. A lot of the things that you find that are red or pink in color, if you actually open the ingredient, look at the ingredients, you'll find this carmine ingredient there. Search it. It's with a C. Carmine. And um, it's a red dye that's taken from beetles. They actually take insects and they crush them. And then from there, they extract the... The red color, which makes its way into our food, and that's how you have that nice, red, pink tone called carmine. So that's where the ikhtiraf came from. Is it okay to eat the red m M&M and or not? Because that's where the color comes from. And then, you know, Subway had to change their bread ingredients like 10 years ago because someone did an expose on them where they had an ingredient in there that was used to make tires. Illegal to consume in all countries of the world except for two America is one of those countries. This is the stuff that we eat. We don't even realize it. The sort of nonsense that we put in our bodies. And then in order to solve all these problems, all this garbage and nasty pesticides we're putting into our food, in order to solve these problems now, we have this very dense pharmaceutical industry that is overly sold and lobbied and marketed. So we are a slave of a problem that we created. We're feeding our body... God knows what chemicals, and to counter those chemicals, we need more, body, more chemicals in our body. And people are wondering, why do we have all these diseases? What are we doing? Classical med- medicine was based around the idea of balancing the human body through organic material, through organic ingredients. And no, I'm not a tree hugger. I am the exact opposite of that. Not Kumehta. الفواحش نسيء الجوار القوي من الضعيف. all these social um, sort of um, all these social norms that were ill and were immoral that you can think of existed in us. we were not a good people. that we would break away from our own family members if it meant to gain a little bit more recognition in society. We would turn away from our own. The summary of, of our culture was minna that we look after that the wealth, the strong went forward and the weak fell back. And not just that, the strong ate from the weak. This is fascinating. Look, wealth is not a bad thing. The Islamic perspective on wealth is that wealth is good It's if it's a result of adding value to an economy. Any wealth that adds value to an economy is good wealth. But if your wealth is at the cost of devaluing someone else's profile or hurting another person, that's not good wealth. So Mahmud here, for example, he becomes wealthier because he starts off by making one pair of shoes and then, starts, then he has 10 pairs of shoes and 100 pairs of shoes. That's good wealth. He's adding value to the economy. The second way he's making money is he's not adding any value to the economy. He's just paying people less and taking away money from them and taking away their benefits. That's not necessarily too praiseworthy. It's two different perspectives here. That's what our economy became, what our world became. And this is what life was until Allah sent a messenger from us. We knew who he was. He didn't just pop out from anywhere. He was one of us. We knew his lineage. We knew his truthfulness. We knew what kind of person he was. Very important. Afaf refers to his purity, his nobility. This was not a person that was just looking for fame or looking for you know looking for uh, some satisfaction of his carnal passion he wasn't after petty things this was the real deal this was muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam fadana he called us to worship allah من من he called us to believe in one allah that this Prophet told us to be truthful and to fulfill the trust and to build family ties and to be kind to your neighbors. And he told us to stay away from that which is prohibited and by violating the honor and spilling the blood of another. He told us to stay away from immorality and false testimony. Remember that justice that we talked about? Because if you don't if you can't control the problem of lying and false testimony, your court system means nothing. Your judicial system can crack right at the point where your where that where proof no longer holds any value. If a judgment of proof holds no value, your judicial system is cracked. In order for people to have trust in a government, they have to believe the government gives them justice. And in order for that justice to be given, the verdicts must be trustworthy, and the proof presented in the court must also be trustworthy. And this, Islam, this is why Islam takes false testimony very seriously. Because it will crack the justice system. You can't have false testimony. The punishment will be very severe. قول zur Nabi SAW said, no false testimonies, no lies will occur. Wa al-latim, And he told us to stay away from the wealth of the orphans and from making false accusation. Against uh, uh, noble women of our community. So then he says, The Prophet of Allah, He told us to pray Salah. Again, this is prior to Isra al-Miraj. There still was Salah. We just didn't pray five times Salah. So when you say that, when he says the Prophet told us to pray Salah, Muslims were already praying at that point. Was Zakat here refers to nafilah because Fard Zakat comes in Medina. That the Prophet sallam, told us to give Zakat, charity. He teaches us to be charitable. So we believed in him. And we accepted And we followed upon his command. And at the end of all of this, our people oppressed us. And this is why we are in your land. Najashi, when he hears all of this, that you're saying you were in a particular state, he brought a message, you changed your life, your people oppressed you. What needs to happen now is I need to examine the message. What did he give you that brought such change? Do you have any Quran with you to read? Present a sample of the Quran. Jafar ibn Abi Talib recites the opening verses of Surah Maryam. Najashi hears these verses and he begins to cry. He cries and cries and then he says that um, the revelation of Musa السلام, And this what you recited Were taken from the same lantern He's an intelligent man That analogy is perfect He gave a very good واحد, Very good uh, Very good analogy that he gives Musa they both Because knowledge is light And the example of a lantern is light So he says they both came from the same and then he says to Amr bin As, Get out of here. I'm not sending them back with you. Amr bin As leaves the court in a state of failure. And while he's leaving, he says to his buddy, because two of them came from Makkah, That I'm going to try one more thing. His buddy says, Don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, we got away. Let's just leave this where it is. We didn't, get, we didn't succeed. He said, No, I'm going to try again. So he comes back to Najashi the next day and says, You know, this faith of theirs that you said comes from one, one lantern, it comes from the same source. Musa salam and Christianity and Judaism, it all comes from the same source of this revelation. Well, their revelation doesn't have good things to say about Isa alayhi salam. How could it be from one lantern? Ajashi calls the Muslims and says to them, read for me something about Isa alayhi salam. This is very important. I'll share this last bit, then we'll conclude فَأَرْسَلَ إِلَيْهِمُ النَّجَاشِيُّ عِيسَىٰ فَلَمَّا جَاءَ الرَّسُولُ When the messenger of Najashi came to the companions And he said to them that tomorrow Najashi is calling you And you will present the Quranic opinion on Isa What does the Quran say about Isa? So some companions said to the others مَاذَا تَقُولُونَ That tomorrow when he asks you about Isa, what are you going to say? Because clearly our belief regarding Isa is different from what they believe. They said, we will say what Allah said. Whatever happens, let it happen. We will say what the Prophet said. What's the lesson here? Don't change for people. Be unapologetic. It's not our deen. This is the deen of Allah. Someone asks you something, what does Islam say about this? You tell them. Be open, be straightforward, be clear. There's no need to beat around the bush or create nonsense. No one wants to hear your version of Islam. Your version of Islam is meaningless. What they want to know is what is Islam? What did the Prophet of Allah say? What did Allah say? That's what matters. So then he comes to Najashi the next day and he recites some verses of the Quran and shares the Islamic opinion regarding Isa alayhi salam. Ultimately, Najashi picks up a He took a, a small stick from the from the from the ground in front of him. Ma'ada Isa Hadal Ud That what Isa salam is and what you said is exactly the same. That Isa salam is not the son of God, he is a messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this shows us that Najashi was a Muslim. He is the only person for who Rasulullah prayed Janaza Gha'iban. You know, an absent funeral prayer. It was for Najashi because there was no other Sahabi to lead his Janazah. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam led his janaza himself. So this summarizes the qissa and story of Habisha. So much recovered, and there was a lot of there were a lot of lessons. There was more to be said too. But it's salah time now, so we'll conclude here. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts and grants us fiqh to learn from these beautiful lessons from the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Wa sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad, salamu alaykum wa